Good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, August 1st, and we are starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 14, verse 28. And the verse reads, In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but without a nation, rulership is broken. Let me read it one more time. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but without a nation, rulership is broken. Now, as we've discussed before, it's very tempting to want to jump to interpretations, but one of the first things we want to do is practice the art of asking questions around the verse. So before we try to understand what it's saying, let's just get on the table. What are the questions here about this verse that we want to identify before we start looking for answers. So when you, when you read this verse, what questions come to mind? Things that aren't clear, things we would need to define, things we would need to explain in order to understand what King Solomon's trying to get across to us. Uh, and again, the verse reads, In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but without a nation, rulership is broken. So what do you think? What are the questions? Okay, Jim, isn't it obvious that a kingship is broken if there isn't a nation? You bet. Doesn't that seem pretty straightforward? I mean, how would you be able to have a nation, uh, uh, you know, or, or rulership if you didn't have a nation? And, and isn't that so obvious? Why would King Solomon tell us that? Good question. Um, Linda, who are the people? Okay. Yeah, and a multitude of people. Who are those people? Uh, what's the basis for the rulership? Good, Janine. Um, and Terry, you've asked the question, what are a king and a prince in this context, uh, especially as opposed to how the Western tradition now views them? Okay, good. Excellent questions. Excellent questions. Um, I would add to that... What does it mean in the first part that in a multitude of people is a king's glory? I mean, what does the king's glory have to do with a multitude of people? Uh, and then, kind of, what's the overall subject here that, that King Solomon's trying to get at? As we've discussed in previous classes, generally, but not always, but generally the verses are usually uh, a little bit of a juxtaposition of, of two different things, a contrast. There'll be two halves to a verse. Uh, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, so what's, what's going on here? Um, and uh, Naomi, uh, yep, thanks for the, uh, for the update, and I hope, uh, hope the equipment's holding up well during the class. So I'll suggest the following. A king is only glorious when he has a large kingdom of people who support him. Think, for example, of a king who is in exile and has no supporters. It would hardly be said that in that case, he is, he's in his glory. But when large groups of people support him, then he's glorified, he's recognized, People support him, they cheer for him, they're glad to have him as king. So the first half seems to be telling us that in order for a king to be glorious, he has to have a kingdom. In other words, he has to have subjects who support him. 
And Terry, to your point, I think in this sense, the, the, um, a king was the leader of a nation uh, in those days at the time that this was written. So in, in our time, you know, there may be some countries where the king actually rules, uh, but in some countries, a king is sort of a figurehead position. But in this particular time, when this was written, as far as I understand, the king was the leader. And, you know, uh, he ran the country, and that was that. So, um, and Jim, you've said, is the glory of the king of Belgium less than that of a Chinese emperor? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think in this sense that it's talking about um, if you had uh, a king with, and let me just pick some numbers out of the air, uh, a thousand subjects. And they loved him and they, you know, thought he was great and they uh, supported him and cheered for him and so forth. I don't know that you would necessarily say that... Um, he would have more glory than a king who has 2,000 subjects. You, you could, I mean, let's say a king has 1,000 subjects and they all love him and support him, and another king has 10 million subjects and they all love him and support him. Uh, so, uh, you know, perhaps there the glory is greater. Uh, but certainly, if he doesn't have uh, a multitude of people supporting him, then he's not going to have any glory in being a king. Uh, it's tough to be a king when you only have one or two subjects, uh, particularly if you are in a land where, let's say there are, you know, 10,000 people and 500 of, them, 500 of them are really loyal to you and 9,500 of them hate you as the king. Well, the king's not exactly in his glory. He's probably barely hanging on to his kingdom. But when he has a multitude of supporters, and multitude is a relative term, I think, dependent on the size of that particular country, then you've got some glory. Um, and Terry, you've pointed out that the Western tradition usually suspects kings of being tyrants and eventually uh, oppose the divine right of kings. Uh, yes, we, we often can think of them in that way, but that's really dependent on how the king is. If a king is a benevolent king, and cares about his subjects, and acts on their behalf, and puts himself out there uh, as a leader, not with his own self-aggrandizement in mind, but with the idea of, you know, my job is to help my subjects and, and lead my country and do so with wisdom and understanding, then I'll suggest you're going to have a king that the people are going to rally around. Uh, a king Solomon, you know, if you recall, uh, was offered... Um, uh, you know, by God, ask me what you want. And he said, grant me wisdom that I can, uh, that I can rule these people, you know, effectively. He was interested in the big picture, the picture of justice and of taking care of his people. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as we see, you know, in a number of societies and in a lot of history, sometimes people who get into those power positions uh, all they do is start wanting more riches and more privilege and more power for themselves, and they don't really care about their people. They become tyrants. And then what happens? People eventually uh, become frustrated with them and eventually overthrow them. And if you look at history over many hundreds of years, you see this ebb and flow. You know, a person that is really acting on behalf of his subjects 
uh, will likely, I think, get the support of those subjects. But a person who treats his subjects poorly and just expects them to work hard so that he can have giant palaces and riches while his subjects are starving to death, eventually those people will overthrow him or uh, will, there will be some kind of upheaval. Um, and uh, yes, Terry, as you pointed out in U.S. history, George Washington is admired for not taking the title of king even though he was benevolent. And there were those who wanted him to take that title and he absolutely did not want to go down that road. Uh, so he saw, I think, from you know, British history, the danger of doing that and wanted to set up a different kind of government. So I'll submit to you that the, the king has to have subjects who support him. Now, if he doesn't, if he has no supporters, no group that believes in him, then his rulership is broken. I mean, despite what appears to be power, it's very difficult to be a successful ruler if your subjects don't support you. Uh, or if we put it in a more everyday uh, way that we might relate to today, it's tough to be a leader if you don't have any followers. You know, if no one's following you, it's really tough to lead because you don't have anybody to lead. So how does a king get a nation and real followers? Well... There's the whole dynasty thing, you know, where you become king because your dad was king and, you know, it flows down that way. But still, you have to rule the people in such a way that they support you. And how does that happen? Ibn Ezra says that if you don't live the life of consequences, that is, the fear of God, as we discussed last week, if you don't live that life of consequences, then you'll turn the nation against you. So there could be a connection between this verse and the previous verse. A king must operate according to the life of consequences in order to be successful. Um, and among many positive outcomes of that will be that he will think about the consequences of his actions on his subjects. So by taking a broad view of situations, not a selfish view, but a broad view of how can I best serve this society, he'll take actions that benefit his subjects, and thus he will have a multitude of people, a kingdom of subjects who support him, if he thinks carefully about what is in their best interest and how he can help them. Uh, then people will recognize that. Uh, and, you know, he will likely garner support from those subjects. So the verse seems to be telling us about two directions with regard to a king. With a multitude of people, the king has glory, but without the multitude of people, his rulership is broken. The fear of God, living, that is, a life focused on the fear of consequences, can lead a king to the former, that is, having a multitude of people who support him, as opposed to the latter. Okay, let me pause. Any questions on that verse? Okay, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. And the verse reads, Slowness to anger shows much understanding. But a quick-tempered person elevates his foolishness. 
Slowness to anger shows much understanding, but a quick-tempered person elevates his foolishness. So, on that verse, what kinds of questions come to mind? Sometimes this is all about asking questions about things that we think are obvious but may not be. Uh, as I think we've stated before in these classes, the most dangerous assumptions are the ones we don't realize we're making. We look at something and we immediately think, oh yeah, I know what that means, and yet we can't absolutely and clearly define it. So in that case, we want to identify that as a question. Okay, and Jim, you've said uh, elevate. So a quick-tempered person elevates his foolishness. Good. What does that mean? How, how does that work? How does a quick-tempered person do that? And what does it mean to elevate foolishness? Um, uh, and yes, Charles, agreed. It's an interesting word in this context. And sometimes when King Solomon says something a different way or a way that's unusual, there's something there for us to look at. Um, Jim, you've said, is he putting it on display or is he showing that he values it? Ah, good. Good question. Possibilities for the way we could interpret that. Okay. And, yep, I understand, meaning his folly. So is, is he putting his folly on display by elevating it or is he showing that he values folly? Okay, good. And uh, Terry and Lori, short-spirited. Uh, I'm guessing, not sure whether you're asking a question or whether that's a word in your translation of the verse. Uh, the different uh, editions translate some of these words differently, so maybe you can put that into a little bit of context for us. Okay, I'll ask... One additional question. Um, the first half says, slowness to anger shows much understanding. What is much understanding? I mean, why didn't King Solomon just say it shows understanding? What's with the much part? Um, okay, and Terry and Lori, thanks. That's a word in your, in your translation. Okay, good. So let me start with... Um, what Rabbi Moskowitz described on, the, on this verse as the essential question. And he thought the essential question is, what is much understanding? If I'm slow to anger, how does it show much understanding and what is the much? And he said like this, he said, it's not that you have more understanding, but during the moment of anger, you have the ability to think. That's the much. In other words, you have the understanding despite the fact that your anger is awakened. Sometimes we can be aware of our anger and be able to think independently about it even while we're in it. In other words, we don't lose our ability to think. We don't get so totally caught up in the emotion that we lose our ability to think rationally. We retain that ability to think despite the fact that the emotion, the anger, is trying to overpower us. So he's suggesting that that ability to maintain your ability to think in that moment of anger is much understanding. Now, slowness to anger means slowness to react versus the second half where the reaction is quick. 
The person in the first half won't react quickly to his anger, but he'll take it slowly. The person in the second half will react quickly to his anger. That's that quick-tempered person. So, how do you get to slowness of anger? So, most people think that anger means that I'm frustrated with the situation. Uh, and because they're working on that frustration, they can't cure it. Rabbi Moskowitz thinks that anger comes when I expect reality to act in a certain way and it doesn't fit in with what I want. So the anger is a desire to make reality fit into my expectations. In one sense, it's an unacceptance of reality. If I accepted the reality of the situation, whatever the situation is, I wouldn't get angry. I would just work with what's before me. Okay, so for example, um, take an expectation that everybody should love me. You know, I'm a lovable guy, why wouldn't everybody love me? Will that actually happen? Almost certainly not. So by having that expectation, I've set myself up for eventual anger because eventually someone isn't going to love me. And if that's my expectation, then I'm suddenly in conflict with reality. Okay? It's not the situation that bothers me. It's the expectation that the world should work according to my wants and needs. That's what bothers me. You know, you planned to fly to New York, and you go down to the airport, and they tell you the flight's canceled. Well, okay, you could get all upset about that and say, oh, those airlines, they shouldn't cancel flights like that. And you could be very angry about it. Or you could just say, okay, they canceled the flight. Now what are my options? If I just accept reality, I accept that, okay, they canceled the flight. That's reality. Nothing I do is going to change that. So let me look at alternatives. And, you, and we wouldn't be emotionally caught up in it at all. But if I expect the world to operate according to my plans, my expectations, I've got this trip planned, I wanted to be there in time for dinner tonight, da-da-da-da-da, then I'm going to find myself in conflict. Why? Because I'm bumping up against reality, and I want reality to be different than it is. And that's going to create stress in my life. Okay? Uh, I think I shared on these, uh, in these classes once before that... Um, it was Jack Canfield that I heard. He's the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Uh, I think the first person I heard tell me that, you know, it's, it's not what somebody says to you that makes you upset. It's what you say to yourself after they stop talking that makes you upset. So how do you deal with a situation where you get angry? Well, once you get past the situation and you've calmed down, then you go back and you go through exactly why you were frustrated. You look at expectations and any aspect of the situation where you expected reality to be different than it was. And that can help you spot the areas where you have an expectation that the world will work according to your wants and your needs. So the quick-tempered person in the second half, 
doesn't think about his situation. He just reacts to it. So his foolishness in not acting in accordance with reality is elevated. In my interpretation, that means it's made worse. And certainly it becomes more obvious to others because he's operating as if the world should meet all of his expectations. So he elevates his foolishness because of that quick temper. Not only is he foolish in, in expecting reality to go along with what he, um, you know, his own desires, but that quick temper, that, that quick reaction, that not being able to uh, step above his emotions elevates his foolishness to where it is immediately obvious uh, to other people around him. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, so we'll move on to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 30. And this is a translation uh, that may be a little different than yours. Uh, this was one given by Rabbi Moskowitz. Uh, and I think we've, we've stated before that, uh, you know, depending on how you interpret the Hebrew, a uh, number of the verses can be translated in different ways, and sometimes the commentators take a different approach. Doesn't mean the approach is, you know, that there's only one right way and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of wrong ways, but there can be many different ways to interpret the verse, and as long as uh, the interpretation fits in and all the questions can be answered, uh, then it can generally be uh, deemed, as far as I know, a valid interpretation. So this was the way he translated it. The life or health, of flesh is a healing heart, and the rot to the bones is envy. The life, or could be health, of flesh is a healing heart, and the rot to the bones is envy. So given that translation, what are the questions around that verse? Okay, Jim, good, thanks. What's a healing heart? You know, life of flesh is a healing heart. What is a healing heart? Good. Janine, excellent. What are the implications of our emotions on our bodies? Oh, my, yes. That's a very important one. Good. Naomi, what is tender here? Okay, and I'm guessing, uh, I don't have the art scroll in front of me, but that... Um, it probably says the life of flesh is a tender heart. Rabbi Moskowitz um, did not like tender heart as a translation because uh, it's the opposite of jealousy uh, and because jealousy brings hatred and anger. So um, he wanted to say that the healing heart gives you good life, uh, so it causes you physical health. Um, uh, and Jim, does it does it stand in contradistinction to envy? Okay, good. Have we got two opposites going on there? Excellent. Um, I'd also ask, how does envy bring rot to the bones? Uh, and then Jim, as you've alluded, what's the first half got to do with the second half? So, let's start with. Um, Uh, well, we've got, I guess, an expansion of the question on healing heart. How does a healing heart deal with health? Uh, 
Um, and how does jealousy uh, or envy cause you to have physical disease? Because uh, it says rot to the bones. So Rabbi Moskowitz uh, thinks that envy and jealousy are the same and that they are a cover for something deeper, which is that I don't want the other person to have anything. I don't want the other person to have anything. Okay? The Talmud says that a rich man cannot take the dirt on the poor man's shoes. It bothers him that he even has tattered shoes. But if you feel that way, you can't face the fact that you do feel that way. So you buy something for yourself that is better than something the other guy has, so what he has becomes not worth anything. In other words, you've got to comp uh, there's a certain comparison thing going on here in the envy and, and jealousy thing. Um, it's not just that I want something, it's I don't want the other person to have it. And Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that there's something more fundamental going on here, and he suggests that it's sibling rivalry, that two, uh, two siblings both want the love of the parent, and the only way to get that is to get rid of the other sibling. Now, one of the proofs... Well, let me pause, because uh, Naomi, you had a comment. Um, how does it rot the bones and why bones only? Uh, I believe that we will get to that. Um, so hold, hold that thought, and uh, we'll circle back if we haven't covered that by the time we get done. Um, so one of, a one of the proofs that people sometimes use as a proof is their own success. And based on their own success, they make a decision as to whether God loves them or not. But sometimes not having success is a good thing because when things go wrong, that's a situation where you can be perfected. In other words, when things go wrong, it may bring up certain emotions in you or there's a certain opportunity for analysis there to figure out what's going on. So, and that can help move you toward perfection, which is ultimately what we should be desiring. So success in the real world isn't necessarily an indication of, you know, your relationship with God. It's not a proof of whether you're in line with God's will or not. And then there's another interesting observation. It also seems that we tend to be jealous of people above us, but not jealous of people below us. So we look up at, you know, someone who has more than us, a uh, bigger home, fancier car, more wealth, nicer clothes, gets to go on more vacation, blah, blah, blah. And we may be jealous of them. We're rarely jealous of someone who has less than us. An interesting point to consider. So if you're feeling this kind of jealousy, how do you undo it? 
And Rabbi Moskowitz suggested two approaches. One approach is to actually recognize it. In other words, logically you accept it, but emotionally you go back to the other way, you know, so you, you keep reviewing the idea, you keep going over and over the facts of the idea until they begin to have an impact on your emotions. Okay? That doesn't always have to take a lot of time, but it can take a lot of time. Uh, but you, you know, it's what we've talked about in many of these verses. You're constantly involved in the world of review. Uh, the other approach is to recognize that success, as we've just discussed, is not a barometer of whether you do right or wrong. There have been very righteous people who were tortured, killed, murdered, or who had very bad luck in business. You can be successful and righteous or not successful and righteous. So, how do these things affect the body? So let's recall that, and we've talked about this a couple times, that when this book was written, the term heart generally referred to the mind. So we're talking, uh, as was uh, mentioned earlier, um, and let me go back to who said that, uh, Janine uh, mentioned the effect uh, of our emotions on our bodies. We're talking about the effects of thought and emotions on the health of the body. When a person has a healing heart, that is, thoughts that are in line with reality, then that has a positive effect on the body. For example, if my friend gets a new car and I'm genuinely happy for him, then I won't have any conflict around it. Like, hey, Sam got a new car. Isn't that cool? You know, it's a pretty blue color, goes fast, nice smell of new upholstery. Isn't that nice? Okay, and I have no desire to have one myself, and I have no desire that, well, gee, because Sam got a new car, I should have a new car. Let's say I have none of that. Then I have no conflict around it. And the removal or the absence of those conflicts can bring health and life to my body. There have been many studies, as far as I know, that have shown that the things that you think affect various parts of your body. They affect your strength. They affect your uh, immune system. Um, and so what you think has an impact on your health. On the other hand, if Sam gets a new car and it just burns me up, I mean, geez, Sam got one and I didn't. You know, I deserve a new car too. I've worked just as hard as Sam does, and on and on and on. What am I doing? I'm winding myself up into conflict. I am resisting reality because the reality is Sam got a new car and I didn't. And I am, I am creating a huge amount of stress and tension in my life. And we know that stress is not good for the, you know, in this context, uh, you know, for long-term health. So uh, if I expect that I should have a new car too, that conflict can eat away at me like a cancer, bringing rot in the bones. In other words, rot in the bones being uh, a measure of it just eats away at my basic structure and my basic foundation, which I suspect is why uh, he uses the term bones, um, and causes uh, you know, real physical problems in my life. 
I waste huge amounts of mental energy fighting reality because I think reality ought to be different. And that fighting against reality can be enormously draining. It can drain my health, and it can ultimately destroy my life uh, if I let it. I mean, a person can be so, um, you know, uh, angry and frustrated and bitter that the bitterness can just consume them. So the verse seems to be focused on uh, the effect of my thoughts on the health of my body. And so if I have a healing heart, that is, a mind whose thoughts are in line with reality, that's life or health to my flesh. And by contrast, the life of envy, of expecting that other people should not have stuff, uh, and you know, constantly finding myself in conflict with other people because they do have things and I don't want them to have them and I think I should have them, that is ultimately going to bring a rot to my bones. In other words, it's going to negatively affect my health, uh, causing problems in the long term. Okay. Does this make sense? Any questions on this verse? So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. And it reads, He who oppresses a poor man blasphemes his maker, but he who is gracious to a destitute man honors him. He who oppresses a poor man blasphemes his maker, but he who is gracious to a destitute man honors him. And you can guess that my next question is going to be, what are the questions? And I should specify that in the last part when it says, he who is gracious to a destitute man honors him, the him is with a capital H and is referring to the maker specified in the first half. So just to clarify the facts. Okay, Jim, how does oppression indicate blasphemy? Good, good question. How do you get from one to the other? And I'd add to that, how does, what does it mean to oppress a poor man? What does that mean? Um, and then by, by, on the flip side in the second half, what does it mean to be gracious to someone who's destitute? And how does that honor a man's maker when he is gracious to the destitute? So let me start with the, one of the first questions. Why does someone oppress a poor man? Why do you think someone would oppress a poor man? So, Louis, you said when you do not help him. Uh, well, I'm saying if you're going to oppress someone, why would you oppress a poor man? And, and Jim, yes, I agree because the poor man can't defend himself. A poor person is generally weak, not weak physically, but their resources are very, very limited. And so it can be very difficult for those people to fight back. So a person who wants to oppress someone may often choose to oppress a poor man because he thinks there will be no resistance and that he can get away with it 
without any fear of reprisal. Okay, and in that sense, he acts as if there is no creator, that no one will see his actions, that there will be no justice for the poor. Okay, and Mona, uh, you said we're responsible to Hashem to use all we have to glorify Hashem uh, in all our actions. Okay, good. And the poor usually have no one to stick up for themselves. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, and uh, Naomi, yes, helplessness in many cases. And Linda, to keep him dependent on the one that is doing uh, the oppressing. Yes, they're, they're easy, easier prey, perhaps, than an average person. You all may be familiar with the fact that the Torah... Uh, seems to identify in various places three types of people who are to be treated with care. The poor, orphans, and widows. Why would people particularly oppress or take advantage of them? Because they're perceived to be weak and incapable of resisting. So I'll suggest that if a person takes that approach, it's as if he blasphemed his maker. He doesn't think that his maker will hear the cries of the poor or that his maker will see the oppression that he's putting on the poor or that his maker will bring justice for them. Okay, and yes, Naomi, depriving the poor of their needs. Uh, and uh, Now, Mona, you said when we do things to others that bring shame to God's name, and oppressing the poor could be the poor could be one of those, um, and there I mean there could be many things that we do that bring shame to God's name, uh, but I would agree uh, oppressing the poor uh, could be uh, certainly considered to be one of those. Um, and Jim, yes, the, uh, that's a very good point you brought up. Uh, that he, furthermore, he doesn't treat the poor as one made in the image of God. Uh, it's very easy, and I think we discussed this during our last class, that if you can in your mind categorize someone differently, you can do all kinds of cruel things to them that you wouldn't do necessarily to a fellow human being because you've managed to, in your own mind, put them in a different class. Oh, they belong to the poor. I'm not the poor, they're the poor. And it's like the separation. You can disconnect yourself from their humanity. And I think we've discussed before, the Nazis did this with regard to the Jews during the Second World War by, uh, by classifying in their own minds that uh, in their view, the Jews were somehow a lower life form. They could then excuse in their minds doing all sorts of terrible things to them. So um, because the the oppressor treats the poor differently, doesn't see them as, as a person just like themselves, uh, then it's easier for them to dissociate from them and then you know, oppress them and treat them in a, a disrespectful and, uh, and terrible way. Okay. Um, and... Eva, you've said dislike for the unlike. I'm not sure what you're getting at on that statement. So uh, maybe you can elaborate on that. Um, 
Terry and Lori, or honor your fellow's honor. It's very true. Uh, if we tend to think about other people with the same kind of um, respect and uh, honor that we would expect to get for ourselves, uh, it can really make a difference in how you deal with people. I will submit to you this is the essence of what we call win-win agreements. If I have to negotiate with somebody, you know, if I'm selling my car and uh, I put it out there, you know, on the, on the, the street uh, with a tag on it and then the person comes along and wants to buy it. So do I try to cover up all the things that I know are wrong with it or do I say to the person, now let me tell you everything that doesn't work with regard to this car and treat them the same way that I would want to be treated if I were the buyer. In other words, am I interested that they get a good deal to the same degree that I'm interested that I get a good deal? Do I look for something that's a win for both of us so that I'm treating them as a fellow human being as opposed to, you know, let me try to adjust this deal to make the biggest win I can at their expense. Uh, it's a very different approach to life when you start to look at, at people uh, in, in that regard. Uh, and uh, Terry and Lori, as you say, honor your fellow's honor. Now, by contrast, in the second half, the one who is gracious to a destitute person, who gives charity and provides for the destitute man's needs, that person honors his maker. Why? Because he recognizes that it is only through his maker that he has what he has and that the maker provides everything. So by giving charity and providing for the poor, he's honoring the one who both made the poor and who made him and provided him with what he has. So he's recognizing justice in the world and a holistic view of mankind. He's honoring the one who created him by using what he has to help the poor. It's a different mindset. It's where you don't see yourself as better than another person or whatever. You see that the, the material things that you have as an opportunity to help other people who may be in a different situation, which you could just as easily be in uh, as well. So it's not a me-them kind of thing. It's a holistic view of humanity. And I see myself as just one part in that whole sea of humanity uh, and uh, I recognize my true place. So being gracious to someone who's destitute is a way of seeing that we're just part of a much larger worldview of humanity. Um, and uh, it's, it's a recognition that he's also a human being. He just happens to be or she in a different set of circumstances. And it's part of my responsibility as a member of society of human beings to help him. Uh, so when you start seeing the world this way, you start seeing yourself in the true light of reality. Uh, and I will submit that this is part of justice when you see the world this way. So the verse is talking about how we treat the poor and what that translates to in terms of our view uh, of the Creator. Any questions on, on this? Okay, let me pick up on comments. Um, uh, and Mona, in righteousness, we have no other option but to be truthful. Uh, yes, except for a whole different topic, which I wasn't planning to take up tonight, uh, which is 
that there are times to lie. Um, and uh, that is a whole study and subject in itself. But generally, yes, we, we you know, should operate truthfully and straightforwardly with, with other people. There are certain cases where it's acceptable to lie. Linda, you've pointed out it's acceptable to lie for peace in the home. Um, we, we see the situation uh, in the story of Abraham uh, when the uh, three angels came. And uh, we see that God even changed uh, in relating to Abraham what Sarah said. He changed what Sarah said. And the sages indicate in order to maintain uh, peace in the home. But Mona, your general point is, is correct, that uh, righteousness is about seeing you know, the world of truth and operating in that. Um, and Jim, you said, uh, you said uh, this triggered a thought, are we doing damage to the poor by calling destitute those who really aren't? Um, that's a good question. One has to be very careful, I think, a label that one puts, one, one puts on people. The verse was trying to get to a particular uh, a description of a particular, uh, a person in a particular situation who perhaps can't provide for their own uh, needs and is in a, a terrible economic situation. Uh, so I think, I presume that is why King Solomon used that term. But I mean, yes, it, it, one has to be careful in how one uses those kinds of descriptive words when talking about uh, specific people. Um, and uh, Janine, uh, you've mentioned we have to stop putting people in boxes and use, uh, using labels. Yes, it can be very easy to do that, and uh, as we've, I think, discussed before, um, it, what we can end up doing sometimes is putting people on a, putting a label on people that allows us to stop thinking about them as an individual and unique and complex human being. Uh, I'll submit that that happens when you get into to political kinds of situations. If you're... Um, if you label someone as a Republican or someone as a Democrat, you know, we all have little boxes in our minds for, oh yeah, I know what a Republican is, and I pop that person in that box, and I presume that I can project on them all the things that I think a Republican is, or I think a Democrat is, or I think a, um, a property rights advocate is, or I think that an environmentalist is, when in fact people are much more complicated than that. Uh, and, and we have to be very careful uh, as to where our mind can take us in that. Um, uh, and uh, Jim, you've said in this country we often don't help, the, help those in dire need because we call others in dire need, you know, who, who could work. Uh, it, I hear you. That's, that's a question of, you know, who really needs help and who, who doesn't and how you, uh, how you make that discernment. So... Uh, and it is, you know, fair and important to, uh, to make those kinds of discernments. So, good points. Any other questions or comments on this verse? So let's move on to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 32. And it says, A wicked man is thrust down with his evil, but a righteous man is confident in his death. A wicked man is thrust down with his evil, but a righteous man is confident in his death. What kinds of questions does that bring up? 
Okay, Jim, is the wicked being thrust down in death? Good. Good question. So it says a wicked man is thrust down with his evil. What does the thrusting down mean? Um, and Charles, you've identified that question too. What's it mean to be thrust down? Very good. Um, and Naomi, you've asked, casting off in shelter is the reward for evil and good. Uh, okay. Uh, we'll, I think, get to that. Um, the fear of Hashem, Janine, you've said, or lack of, has what consequences? Okay, good. That's an excellent question, and we can cover that one. Um, okay, uh, Janine, you said thrust down where? So a wicked man is thrust down. What does that mean, and where is he thrust down to? Uh, okay, and I would add, why is a righteous man confident in his death? That's an interesting statement to make. Um, so Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. He said in Mishle, in the book of Proverbs, death is the worst thing. Now when we use the word God and how God is relating to us, it means the laws of nature or providence. Those are the two systems by which God relates to us. The laws of nature or divine providence. Those are the two main systems that we have. Okay, again, the laws of nature and God's personal providence. Now, in the second half, when it says trust or confidence, the righteous man is confident in his death, it means that he accepts the laws of reality. He has no conflicts, and he'll still act rationally when he runs up against the laws of reality. And Rabbi Moskowitz made this point. He said, in the infantile mind, the first thing that the infant recognizes, uh, or the first thing he recognizes is himself for about the first three months. He's totally self-contained. And that becomes his image of God. And after about three or four months, he notices that the two big giants outside of him have control, you know, mom and dad. So then he thinks that they must be God. And he thinks that if I want to get back to my state of total perfection, then I have to relate to them. So the parents become to this little infant like God. They become God. And if the child has tough parents then his image of God becomes, you know, fire and brimstone and whatever. If his parents are nice, his image of God might be of a nice guy. So it becomes very easy as we grow older to visualize God as just a big version of our parents. And it can take years to undo this idea. Now, the righteous person, the tzaddik, looks at the essence of God as how God relates to him. So he needs to learn God's systems. And then he needs to learn how to live within that system. So that when something bad happens, he understands that that is part of the system. I mean, he, he's learned to live within the systems of Hashem. By contrast, when something bad happens to the wicked person, 
he thinks it's personal. And once it's personal, then he has to view it through his infantile idea of God. So the wicked person has an infantile idea of God, if at all, and is going to view life through that infantile idea. So the wicked man's infantile view of God causes him to be thrust down because he views the things that happen to him as personal, not just as consequences of a system. So it's his evil, it's his approach that throws him down, essentially. The righteous man, by contrast, is confident in the systems that God created. Because he knows he's acting in accordance with reality. He's acting in accordance with those systems. And even death is part of that reality. So the righteous man is confident in his death because he's recognized that that too is a part of the reality that God created. So the wicked man gets thrust down in, in a sense... Uh, um, uh, crushed, if you will, with his, his own ideas because when things happen to him, he can only view it through his infantile idea of God and he takes it very personally. He doesn't recognize there's a system there. So that, that running up against reality crushes him. Whereas the righteous man is... Confident because he recognizes the system of reality, operates in accordance with it, even up to and including his own death. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, uh, let's see, just want to check on comments here. Um, and Terry and Laurie, you've said these things that happen to us are to be a learning event for us. Hopefully we do learn from all things good or bad toward us. Yes, you can learn from, from virtually everything that happens to you. If, for example, uh, you know, I, I run up against a situation and I operate in accordance with reality, it doesn't go the way I expected, but I accept that, okay, then I've learned that you know, I can operate in accordance with that and I've seen God's reality at work and I'm in line with that. If I run up against something and it's bad and I have an emotional reaction to it, then, oh, that's good news, too. The good news is that I've seen my emotional reaction and now I know I have something to undo. And so I know what to focus on in order to um, help uh, to uh, undo or get above those emotions in order to help perfect my soul. So the righteous person, the person operating in accordance with that context, wins either way. Now... There's one question, let me go back up, uh, that Mona, I think you asked this. Um, no, it's Janine. Uh, the fear of Hashem, or lack of, has what consequences? So, the fear of Hashem is the fear of consequences. And so, if, because remember, I'm acting in accordance with God's, or I have two systems, whereby God relates to me, the laws of nature, and God's personal providence, uh, if that comes into play. But everybody's, you know, uh, generally under the laws of nature. So um, the operation, the fear of Hashem, is the fear of consequences 
within that system. And so uh, when I don't pay attention to consequences, I get the result of that. Uh, so, for example, if I, uh, you know, walk into, walk in front of a fast-moving truck, uh, I get consequences. If I jump off a bridge uh, and they measured the bungee cord too long, uh, I get consequences. So it's, it's a natural thing based on uh, what, you know, we can expect uh, in the real world. Um, and Mona, yes, not only to us, but to our neighbor and their reactions to things good or bad. Dealing with people is the same way. You know, if I have to go in and deal with a person who I happen to know and I've carefully analyzed uh, has a, uh, a touchy uh, attitude about a particular thing, then I will know by way of having looked at that and consequences that, hmm, maybe I shouldn't deal with them about that particular incident. Or maybe I need to deal with it in a particular way because I've looked at the consequences of dealing with it another way and I realize if I say it this way they're going to get very upset with me. If I say it this way they'll be able to hear it and understand it. So uh, it's all about looking at consequences and that is when we talk about Mishle and the fear of Hashem, that is what the fear of Hashem is. It is the fear of consequences and living in accordance then uh, with those consequences. Early on, we defined wisdom as the ability to see and act on the basis of consequences. And so that, I submit to you, uh, is the life of Mishle, the life of the book of Proverbs. Okay, any other questions or comments? Okay, in that case, we'll stop for the evening. Thank you all so much for joining tonight, and I hope you will be able to join with us next week.